have a uh, copy of God's Word with you today, please turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And this morning I want to uh, give us an overview of the argument that Paul is trying to make in Romans 7. And in doing so, give us two keys that would unlock this argument. We'll come back next week, Lord willing, and we will see that final segment of this argument in Romans 7 and actually bleeding over into Romans chapter 8, the first few verses there of how this tension, how this battle as we will see that is going on inside of Paul and inside of you and me is finalized. So if uh, you have that copy right in front of you, let me read for us uh, Romans 7. I know it's a long passage, but you and I need to see it so that we can try to grasp it. Paul records these words in uh, these verses. He says this, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Then he gives an illustration, Paul does, to try to let them see this picture of the law is binding on a person only as long as that person lives. And here's the picture, verse 2 and following. But for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that Likewise, my brothers, you've also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, they aroused, they were aroused by the law, they were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Verse 6, but now, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. 
but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that that is good. That it is good, excuse me. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, my inner being, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Heavenly Father, I bow before you. God, you are righteous. You are holy. You are just. Father, you know in totality, you know in all facets from every angle, above, below, and all around this passage, the argument that is being made and how clear it is in your ears, even though it might not be so in ours. Father, I pray that as we look at these keys this morning, God, that you would speak. Father, you would speak to men and women, Father, you would speak to me, 
about what's going on inside of us, what has gone inside of us, and how you give victory. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As I was studying for this over the past couple of weeks, I read one commentator, and uh, he said this. This passage is, is one of those that you should either spend five minutes on it, or you should spend a whole week on it. Because if you spend five minutes on it, all right, you're going to get the, 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 the top surface, and then we're just going to move on, and you can do that justice. Are you really? If you're going to... Dig in deep here. You need to spend, I mean, everybody needs to stay here a whole week and let's look at this word by word, verse by verse. I'm going to go closer to five minutes. I heard that amen. But I was also reminded this week of a story. You've probably seen it. It was probably in a cartoon it, you might have even gone to a, uh, a Broadway play or an off-Broadway play of it, or you might have even seen the movie from yesteryear. The movie was entitled Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And, and those either cartoons or Broadway shows or even the movie, it, it was brought about by a book that a man wrote. The guy's name was Robert Louis Stevenson. And Robert Louis Stevenson lived in the 19th century, and he wrote this book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It is some 80 pages long. It is a short read, and the Broadway show, the cartoons that you might have seen of it, or even the movie that you might have seen, don't shed light to the true story that he wrote about. Because this staunch Presbyterian... In the 19th century, the 1800s, as he was writing, he read this passage in Romans chapter 7 and the fictional story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde came from it. If you know anything about the story, there is this one man, his name is Dr. Jekyll, and he has come upon a potion and this potion turns him into a totally different man. The man is Mr. Hyde. And Dr. Jekyll believes every time that he takes this potion that this second nature comes out in him and it is true that there is a second nature in himself. And at the end of it, here's what he says. The moment that Jekyll takes the potion, he says this. I knew myself. At the first breath of this new life, I knew myself to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my, to my original evil, and the thought braced and delighted me like wine, end quote. Of course, what ends up happening is that Dr. Jekyll finds out that he can't control Edward Hyde. And that Edward Hyde wins. If you look at this passage in front of me in Romans chapter 7, you see 
a battle that is going on. And let me share with you two keys this morning as we see this overview of the whole of the passage. The first is this, that moral clarity... Moral clarity is a gift from God to you and a gift from God to me. It is found there in the first half of the chapter in verses 1 through 13, especially in verses 7 through 13. You see this moral clarity that is given. And the argument that Paul is making over and over and over again is that, hey, there is this law. And you can't change the law. The law is the law. And this law is actually good, but this law actually showed his sin. And so let's look at those verses very briefly this morning. Let me read those verses uh, once again in verse 7. Let me just break it down. Verse 7 through um, verse 9, it states this. What shall we say then? That the law is sin by no means? Yet, if... It had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. This moral clarity was given to Paul. It was given to him. Because there was a moment in his life, he's making this argument, there there is a moment in his life where he says, hey, it came alive. You're like, wait just a second, let me see if if I remember correctly about Paul. Who was he? Well, Paul was this guy by the name of Saul. He lived in, he grew up in Tarsus which is right there around the Mediterranean Sea. It's in present day um, Turkey. And he is living there, and he is living in a devout Jewish home. From the time that Paul, or Saul at that time, from the time that Saul could talk, from the time that Saul could walk, he was being pumped every single day. Here is God's law. Here is God's law. Here is God's law. There were commandments in that home, and they were stated. And they were stated time and time again. And it wasn't just the ten. You know the ten. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images or no idols. You shall not speak the name of God in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Hey kids, honor your parents, your mom and your dad, because that's the first commandment that has a promise. And older kids, yes, I'm looking at you adults, you honor your parents as well. And I'm looking at myself. And then he says this. Those are five. And then number six is don't kill. Number six, number seven is don't commit adultery. Number eight is that you and I should not steal. We shouldn't lie. We shouldn't covet. Eight, nine, and ten. Those are the ten commandments. And Paul knew them. He could state them even better than I did. Didn't have to even use his fingers because they were pumped in him every single day. But then he says, there was a moment that moral clarity, this gift was given by God. Not only did he know, you shall not covet, he saw. 
his eyes were open and he saw all the coveting that he was doing. You know the argument that he makes in, in uh, the book of Philippians? Philippians chapter 3, after he gives a great display of who Jesus is and how he left everything and came and became a, a bondservant, he, he then goes to this argument. He says, hey, if you want to stand up on your good works, I can do it even better because I'm this and I'm this and I'm this. I, am, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a Benjamin. I am, I'm telling you, I was a Pharisee of this character. I went after all those folks. I, I tried to get all the Christians and put them in jail. I tried to get all the Christians and round them up because I thought that's what God wanted. And I thought that was right. This moral clarity. It is a gift from God. But this moral clarity is not something that will save you because Paul makes this argument right here. Not only do we see the, the relevance of this moral law and we see reasons for this moral law. He says, but sin, look there in verse 8. Maybe you find yourself here where Paul was in verse number 8. He says, but sin, seizing this opportunity through the commandment, sin produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Let me give you an illustration. Let me, actually, let me give you two. One from a man of hundreds of years ago. His name was Augustine. Or Augustine. And here's what he states. He says this, Near our vineyard, there was a pear tree. It was loaded with fruit, and though the fruit was not particularly attractive, either in color or taste, I and some other youths, some other guys, some of my friends, conceived the idea of shaking the pears off this tree and carrying them away. We set out late at night, and we stole all the fruit that we could carry. And this wasn't to feed ourselves. We may have tasted a few, but then we threw the rest out to the pigs. Our real pleasure, here's what he says, our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. Once I had taken them and threw them away, and all I tasted in them was my own iniquity, which I enjoyed very much. I told you last week that I quit drinking alcohol 20 years of age, 364 days. The next day it was legal. Why did I do it? The reason I did it was I'm a rebel. I'm a sinner by nature and by choice. And therefore, when it became legal, I find myself just like Augustine. He says, in a perverse way, all men imitate you who put themselves far from you. That you is God. We have a deep desire to be in charge of the world and of our lives. We want to be sovereign, he argues. Every law God, every law that God has laid down 
is an infringement on your and my sovereignty. It, and you and I are bucking at that. You and I are going 180 degrees away from God. And it reminds us that we're not God. And we try ever so much every single day to be Him. And the law is there. And for some of us, the law has become clear. He has shown that that moral clarity has become clear. His law has become clear for you and for me. And we see, oh, wretched man that I am. That's where Paul comes at the end of this. We see that. And we cry out for Jesus. Four have seen sin. Today, four have seen sin in their lives. Over the last few weeks, they've, and even months, they've been asking questions to mom and dad. They've been asking questions of us. And we've been sitting down and we've been talking with them. And they have come to this point where they are professing publicly what has happened inside of them. Because they see without a Savior, they, just like Paul in this argument, full of sin because of nature, and because of choice. So we see this moral clarity and the argument that is there. But second, let's, let's look at a, a second key this morning. Not only do we see this moral clarity, but second, your conflict with the flesh is a battle that you and I must fight. It's something that you and I got to fight. One sermon that I read concerning this said this there's really two battles that are going on in this passage there's one that you can't win verses 7 through 13 and then there's one you can't lose in verses 14 through the end of the chapter and let's look at that last battle that last battle that you cannot lose and it's only because of Jesus that you and I can't lose this battle look at verse 14 For we know, we know because we've heard it, we know because we've seen it, we know because we've experienced it. The law is spiritual. It's given by God. But I am of the flesh. I'm sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do... What I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. That meaning the law is good. So now, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You and I look at this argument and we say, all right, here's my out clause. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian and Paul was a saint and if he struggled, then therefore I'm no better than he is. So therefore, if he's doing the things that he's not supposed to do, I can do the things I don't want to do. Or the things that I'm supposed to do, I don't have to do them. Get my arguments right. But that's not the argument that Paul's making. You don't have an out clause. I don't have an out clause. It's not that the third Tuesday afternoon we can go do whatever we want to do. Because, hey, the things I want to do, I'm not doing. The things I don't want to do, I'm doing. It's not that... Uh, pages here my wife it's not that that she gives me three days out of the year for 362 days this year i'm going to be faithful to her but for those three days 
Have at it. Whatever you want. No. It's not, it's not going to fly in the Tillman household. Guarantee you that. It's not going to fly in God's house. There is no out clause for us to do whatever we want to do and say, well, this is the struggle that Paul was having. Look at the struggle. Because I believe the struggle is deep. And I believe the struggle is still happening with you and me the same way that it was happening with him. Paul comes to this understanding that there's no way that he can live the right life. There's no way that he can live the victorious life just by knowing what the Ten Commandments are, just by knowing the 600 plus commandments that God had stated in the Old Testament, just by having those memorized, having those in his mind, and him being able to go through a whole test and litany day after day, situation by situation of this moral code. There's no way that he could do it. He sees that struggle. And he comes to this point where you and I must come as well to say these words. Oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me? I can't do it. I can't do it in and of myself. There is no way. I know your law. I see it clearly, but there's no way that I can live that out. I am a wretched, fallen, sinful by choice and by nature of a man or of a woman. And the key for you and the key for me is this. God created you that way. He put inside of you and He put inside of me this God-shaped And you can try all that you want. And you can fill it full of his moral law. You can fill it full of anything that this world has to offer. You can fill it full of anything that you like or anything that you don't like. But there is only one thing that will fit there. And it is Jesus. And you go try. And I go try. And you go do all these things. All these things that you know you're not supposed to do. All these things that you're supposed to do, you're not doing. And Paul understands, and you and I should as well, that it is only Jesus. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that He will deliver you. You know, as I was thinking about those in Rome, those in Rome that uh, were hearing these words for the first time, those that lived in the first century, no matter if it was Ephesus or Philippi, Thessalonica, Rome, Athens, Corinth, Antioch, Jerusalem, sin, sin. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, Solomon wrote that some six, seven, eight hundred years before Jesus. He said, there is nothing new under the sun. You can try whatever you want. It's all vanity of vanities. It's like chasing after the wind. 
But there's a difference between what's happened in our culture and in our day and what had to happen in theirs. For you to just go off the deep end, in that culture, it was out in public. You had to walk down the street to get to the the temple outside of Ephesus to go take part in a thousand prostitutes every morning and every night. You had to walk down the streets and people would see you in Rome or in Athens and you're making this argument or that argument and you're just enjoying sin. Whereas in our day, you and I have the opportunity to close the blinds. You and I have the opportunity to turn off the light, shut the door, lock the door, and nobody sees it, so we think. But there is one. There's one who loves you so very much, sir. There's one who loves you so very much, ma'am. Who knows that you are a wretched woman and a wretched man. Who gave you Jesus. Who took your place on a rugged cross. Who was nailed his arms and his legs. For you. Because he knew the battle. The battle would rage, and it rages in me, and it rages in you. Because you want to be on the throne in your life. And you truly can't, because God's alive, and there's only room for one. But he won't make you make him king. But he's gifted you. He's gifted His Son, Jesus, to take your place. That if we would come like those kids came, died of sin and self, no longer does sin rule and reign in us as He wrote in 7 through 13. I don't know where you are in the journey. I know that some days it seems that there's no way that I can win. Some days that temptation is so strong. Some days that temptation, as he writes there in verse number 8, it's even provoking me to sin. You see the speed limit. Or maybe I see the speed limit and it says 65. And I think, you know what, that's the written law, but the applied law is 77. I can go right here up to the edge, and it's really not going over. Why in the world would we ever, with our lives, try to get so close to an edge that will kill us? Yet you do it every day, and I do it. Why? Why? Jesus Christ, our Lord. If He's not your Lord, He desires to be your Lord. If He's not your Lord, He longs to be your Lord. Heavenly Father, I bow before You. I bow before You as a wretched man. But I bow before You as a son of the King. Because of what You've done.
because you took my place. You died the death for me. Father, I've joined with your son in a death like his, die to sin and self as Paul argued in Romans 6. Die to sin and self. We join with you in a death like yours so that one day we will join in a resurrection like yours. God, it is a battle that we cannot lose if we're yours because you have won the battle. God, I'm so thankful. You know, this week I uh, I was reading in my quiet time out of... Uh, Revelation and also out of Second Thessalonians. Just talking about the man of lawlessness. And he's going to rage and he's going to roar. And then Jesus is going to speak. And he's dead. Oh Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have won the victory. Father, if I would just... If we would just come, confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have given grace. Thank you. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. The invitation for all of us is to respond. To respond to him. If you need to come forward and bow and pray, you come forward and bow and pray. If you need to come forward and talk with me about who Jesus is, let me introduce you to the one who paid everything so that you might have eternal life with him. You stand and you join with us right now.